just a brief word about where we are with vaccines. Of course, it's quite encouraging. I'm Faith Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with the Moving Target. This is the August 5th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits please visit our website for complete CE information. To attest for credit, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There you will also find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window and as a green icon in the bottom menu. Today's learning objectives are, describe current data concerning IL-6 inhibition, discuss data pertaining to convalescent plasma, and discuss status of vaccine development. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. Joining us today is Dr. Paul Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Take it away, Dr. Allwater. Thank you, Faith. Here we are during the summer, and COVID-19 remains at the forefront in so many countries, some lucky and also perhaps better organized countries are relatively free of COVID, but certainly life wherever you're living is, continues to be impacted by this virus. Recently, there have been, I think, a greater call about the importance of the vastly increased numbers in the United States, at least, compared to what we saw just in June, as these numbers have grown in new areas, both in the southern United States, some recrudescence in California, for example, hot spots in various areas, and then uh, recent increases in the Midwest. Dr. Deborah Burks, who's uh, leading up the Corona Task Force through the White House administration, recently urged that given the high numbers in many communities, that one might consider, especially if you have someone at risk for severe illness at home, uh, to wear masks even in the home environment, which I think just speaks a bit to the insidious aspect that this virus can be spread, namely people who are unaware uh, that is asymptomatic that they are infected. Now, a lot of noise, I'll say, has been generated uh, in the media and by certain politicians uh, that were doing well in the United States. And of course, I think most medical professionals would take that view as fairly far from the truth. As you can see on the right-hand part of this slide, so many states have rather significant numbers of deaths seen per 100,000 identified here in red. And if you look at the observed case fatality ratio on the left, you can see the company that we're keeping tends to be countries that have, I think many of us would say a different medical structure with the exception perhaps of the United Kingdom 
which uh, always has had an extraordinarily high death rate for reasons that still remain unaccounted. So there's, I think, room for improvement. And unfortunately, I think aspects such as social distancing, mask wear, just are not doing the job here. I, I'd say it's sort of like saying, you know, for Lyme disease, tick-borne illness, wear DEET, watch uh, for ticks, inspect yourself, wear long clothing, but yet we still have made little dent in uh, the number of Lyme disease cases in terms of reduction despite preventative measures. And I just think it's very hard in our country, especially to corral and coerce people to, to do these aspects. And even then, uh, given how large our country is, it's unclear we would be as well organized as smaller countries such as New Zealand and so on. So a couple of updates regarding treatment. You know, there was a lot of hullabaloo early on, mainly from the Chinese guidelines that uh, suggested one of the treatments for people in that hyperinflammatory phase of COVID-19 would be to utilize a directed therapy against some of the cytokines such as interleukin-6. Tocilizumab was advocated because that is the drug that's used uh, in oncology settings using CAR T-cell therapy and actually as an FDA-approved indication. Unfortunately, there's so far uh, been a washout at least of randomized controlled trials for any of the anti-IL-6 inhibitors. Uh, and this is yet another one where tocilizumab did not reach its primary or secondary endpoints, that is improving the clinical status, uh, much like the remdesivir trial did, or any of the secondary aspects as well, including 28-day uh, mortality. But uh, there was a trend towards improvement in terms of duration of hospitalization until discharge of 20 versus 28 days. Uh, but this essentially is a failed trial for severe COVID-19 pneumonia. Now, uh, we'll have to wait for the publications. Perhaps the drug was given a bit too late. Some have argued it should be given earlier. And Roche is still backing two other phase three RCTs, as well as a phase two trial with this drug. So more to see and see if there is a subpopulation potentially could benefit. But for the moment, dexamethasone still holds, I think, the, the only uh, rightful place in terms of uh, an anti-inflammatory for COVID-19. I did want to bring up so-called triple therapy. Um, we have a local drive-in theater in the Baltimore area that has triple features. This is how they always advertise that. And I think many people have adopted remdesivir rightly uh, and dexamethasone for patients with severe COVID-19 that is requiring oxygen, uh, but uh, are using convalescent plasma, which since March has had an emergency IND from the FDA. So the rationale might be that you're really targeting three different mechanisms of action, an antiviral, antibodies, and anti-inflammatory agent. However, this is an untested combination. Um, so far, safety seems acceptable, at least from the 20,000 patients that so far have seem, seemingly received the drug that is the convalescent plasma and in a uh, trial that's at least being organized by the Mayo Clinic, but is nationwide. 
we will not have a randomized controlled trial regarding treatment for hospitalized patients because of the EIND. So we're going to be left with a large number of patients and then match controls to try to understand if it works. And of course, that's always going to be fraught with selection bias for deciding. It's, up, it's essentially up to clinicians to uh, decide whether they're going to use the drug or not. So I think, unfortunately, we're not going to have as robust data for convalescent plasma, at least in this country, in the near future. Perhaps there are other trials that will actually reach endpoints on an RCT. But any trial, at least in the United States, I think is even going to be made further difficult if the FDA does consider uh, giving it emergency use authorization, which uh, means that then it would be eligible for a reimbursement by you know, federal insurance programs and so on. So what we have so far, and I just want to point out if you've seen this particular preprint, it's not been peer reviewed. Uh, this comes out of the Mayo Clinic, Michael Joyner, but also at our institution, Johns Hopkins, a senior author, Arturo Casadevall, who has been a proponent of uh, convalescent plasma. What they did was assemble uh, information from data uh, that's not only a few randomized controlled trials we'll show you, but some case control and case series studies. Uh, these are some of the studies, and I, I just be wary because you have the match control and case series. They're all relatively small in number. And then the RCTs that are listed, one from China, one from Iraq, and so on, none of them actually showed uh, a mortality benefit. You can see none were actually statistically significant here. And even if you look at these studies, uh, many were not statistically significant either in terms of uh, mortality. So you know, of course, when you're aggregating things, you do get more numbers, but this is, of course, one of the problems with meta-analyses and uh, why randomized controlled trials remain the gold standard in this way. But, you know, people may look at this kind of plot here that is listing all these and giving uh, odds ratios from each study. Look at how large these confidence intervals are for these odds ratios. Um, they're just really very large. And even when you aggregate everything, it's, it's still uh, significant. So um, I, I think the jury is still out. We'll perhaps never know in a definitive uh, way whether convalescent plasma is truly an agent uh, that can be relied upon for COVID-19. But uh, I'm hoping there'll be enough information at some point in the next six to 12 months to say otherwise. So according to this paper, they say there's a 57% reduction. But again, this is aggregate data. I think there are many limitations which are uh, outlined here. And, and so I do think you really need randomized controlled trials, but unfortunately, we lost that opportunity in March. Even then, if we had the chance for at least 2,000 patients to be enrolled in an RCT before the EIND, we'd be in much better shape. The other caveat I'll just mention for anyone that's not following this closely is that about a third of the plasma that was administered is likely of low titer, meaning they do not have um, high amounts of uh, antibodies directed against this novel coronavirus. So just yet another wrinkle. Uh, in terms of prevention, of course, just a brief word about where we are with vaccines. Of course, it's quite encouraging. Almost 
every week we're hearing about a phase one trial where the candidate vaccine seems to engender a reasonable immunologic response and perhaps at least so far no gross safety signals. Uh, we have six that are be just beginning the large phase three trials. And so this is really where we need to see if these vaccines shine, uh, that they have efficacy in terms of either prevention or reduction in severe illness, and also give an even better safety signal, which I believe will be very important because I think we, we want to maintain trust even while trying to speed things in a in a really amazing way here to get a effective vaccine into the general public yet to be uh, sorted really, of course, is once vaccines are available is how it will be distributed. And that's of course, a focus of uh, some debate already, even a couple months ahead of perhaps the earliest indication of an FDA approval. Okay, Faith, that's all for this week and uh, a few questions are at hand. Okay, thank you for those updates. We will now move to the listener Q&A. This is our first learner question. Do we know how long asymptomatic COVID positive people are infectious? Uh, Faith, I think the simple answer there is I'd have to say we're not very sure. So we know that, you know, estimates are anywhere from 20 to 40% or more of uh, people who are asymptomatic may be contributing to others' infections because they don't know they're ill. What we do know is people that don't develop symptoms tend to shed viral RNA longer. We don't know if they're really infectious, but they uh, shed the virus longer than people that develop even mild symptoms. And our thought is from studies at hand, we know for people that are ill that we don't recover infectious virus after day 10 of symptoms. So um, people are most contagious uh, the first few days after acquiring the infection, especially in the upper airways. So we really don't know answers to that one and uh, we're awaiting uh, definitive studies. Okay, and our second learner asks, how is convalescent plasma administered? Is it an inpatient transfusion? Do we need to type in cross to receive the plasma? Yeah, so convalescent plasma requires uh, an angiocath, that's a catheter that's an intravenous insertion to administer. So uh, blood banks will have to match that to your blood type, that's A, B, or O. But you don't have to cross match because there are no red blood cells there. Now, is it an inpatient transfusion? I would say for the EIND, that is to qualify uh, by FDA rules, you have to have severe COVID-19. That is, you have to be hypoxemic with COVID pneumonia or worse. So yes, functionally at the moment, that's true. However, there are a number of trials now, two of which are actually at Johns Hopkins and uh, run by my colleagues who are uh, doing an outpatient treatment of uh, convalescent plasma. And these are actually multi-center national studies and then one is on prevention. That is, if you have a close contact, you're given the uh, plasma as prevention because we know, at least for household contacts, about 10 to 20% of people with a close household contact for COVID-19 may develop the infection. So 
Functionally at the moment, it's only an inpatient uh, administration outside of a clinical trial. Thank you, and this is our last learner question. Are you comfortable with the accelerated vaccine development process? And is there any compromise on the study of the safety of these vaccines? I think there is just tremendous drive to get effective vaccines to the public, uh, not only the United States, but worldwide. You know, the average time to getting a successful vaccine from start to finish can be eight to 10 years or even longer. This is being compressed tremendously. I think it would be difficult to say that we really have as much care and attention as we uh, move through the process, mainly because we're accelerating and often grouping together phase one and two studies together or phase two and phase three studies together in an effort to cut off important weeks and months in the vaccine development process. I do hope certainly that the Food and Drug Administration carries out its analysis as carefully as it does usually because we really need to maintain trust in the public. There are already uh, people that are against uh, immunization on practical or theoretical or philosophical grounds. And I think if we do not take care and if indeed there's a rush and untoward reactions that were not anticipated or seen in studies because of a short-circuiting, that is perhaps not completing a phase three study yet authorizing by emergency use that the vaccine could be administered, uh, I think then we may poison the well, not only for COVID-19 and vaccinations, but really for uh, many other infectious diseases for which we depend on immunization for control. So. I think this is something that um, I'm watching very carefully. I know many other people are. Uh, I do uh, take uh, care and comfort in the FDA, uh, hopefully uh, staying quite independent in its decision-making, relying on the science. And uh, I think you'll hear reliable public health officials, at least to the best of abilities based on the information we have, give opinions and make recommendations uh, through the ACIP, which is often the typical mechanism, or just by FDA approval. Thank you, Dr. Allwater. As a reminder to claim credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com that's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Don't forget to access our resource center at covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. Again, thanks for joining us, and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thanks again for your time, Dr. Allwater. Yeah, thank you so much, Faith, and hope everyone stays safe and well, and thanks so much for listening.